Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And so we didn't tell him the whole story about kind of getting married at Burning Man three and a half days after meeting one another. But uh, when we did meet for really kind of the first proper time, I was up at their house in Connecticut and I mean, he was just icing me so hard, like at the dinner table, not talking to me, not asking any questions when we were playing ping pong. I like literally went up to play ping pong and he like put his paddle down and like walked away. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And, um, <laughs> and I just remember having this moment where when I was leaving uh, their house in the time I, I went, I grabbed her father and said, Raj, you know, I'd love to actually definitely Mr. Agarwal was not calling him Raj. Um, the namesake and, that there's that moment where oh, yeah, yeah, totally. oh. They're, like, definitely not, definitely not communicating on a first name basis. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? 
But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Andrew, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out uh, about you and your work by way of one of our former guests, Mickey Agarwal, who happens to also be your wife. And when she was suggesting people, the first person that came to the top of the list uh, was you. And the funny thing is, while she was telling me about what you did, I had actually made a mental note to say, oh, yeah, we should definitely have him. And she was you were the first person she suggested. But before we get into your work, I want to start with what I think is a very relevant question, given the nature of what I know about you. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and throughout your career? Oh, what, a, what an interesting way to start the interview. Um you know, I, I will start slightly before high school because it has a lot to do with really kind of my life's mission. My life's mission. Um, so I grew up in Hawaii, uh, going to public school. And what a lot of people don't know about Hawaii is that there's oftentimes a lot of racism towards um, upper middle class white people in those schools. So I had this interesting experience of uh, racist kind of uh kind of racism and prejudice and discrimination for being a white person which you know certainly is a uh, an uncommon experience in America and felt a lot of isolation growing up in Hawaii and then when I moved to uh northern virginia right outside of DC for high school all I wanted to do more than anything was just to fit in because I had experienced this this loneliness if i'm being really honest about it for so much of my life. And so the social group that I ended up connecting with, I would say is the, the jocks or the, the cool kids. And that was very intentional because I was trying so damn hard to, to fit in all the time. Um, and so that and how that contributed to, you know, a lot of the, the businesses that I have ended up creating, a lot of the, the work that I put into the world as a writer and a speaker is really about human connection because, you know, I, I dealt with that kind of loneliness and social isolation uh, so uh, so intensely growing up that I was so kind of committed to never doing it again. And so I became obsessed with with human connection and how do we belong. And for a lot of my early life, I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to be the person that I thought other people wanted me to be and contorting my words and my actions to fit in. And, you know, in an early age, I realized that that was kind of, for me, a fairly unfulfilling way to, to exist and started to try and come up with ways to more authentically connect with other people and build community and express myself transparently. And, uh, so how, how my, my social group, um, impacted me is that, you know, I just, uh, feeling that, that sense of isolation and loneliness that I think, you know, now you look at 50% of millennials and Gen Ys identify as being lonely. It's like the, the world needs reminders and support to be able to connect. And whether it's through my businesses or my voice and my writing, you know, I'm really on a mission to, to help people in that way. Yeah. We'll get to your businesses. Um, I want to go back to high school, particularly because I think that those of us who are never part of the groups of like cool kids or jocks. So, you know, I think we have certain perceptions of what these people are like. So, you know, some of my favorite TV shows are like 90210 and One Tree Hill and shit that's basically for teenage girls. Sure. One of my friends asked, he's like, what is this all about? I was like, you know what I think it is deep down? I said, these people live a life that was nothing like mine as high school. It was so much, theirs is so much more fascinating. It's like vicariously experiencing the high school life I wish I had. And I, I wonder what misperceptions do you think that those of us who weren't cool have about people like, you know, <clears throat> the, uh, the ones that were in the groups you're in? Because I asked another guest, I said, does the hottest girl in school know she's the hottest girl in school? <laughs> yeah. 
because I've always wanted to ask one of the girls from high school that uh, just to kind of for my own research to say, okay, did you know that everybody thought you were the hottest girl in school or was that a perception we created of you? You know what, like, what is it, what does it even mean to, to be like in that group and popular? Like, what was that? I think that to be in that group meant that you had access to, it was, it was a form of social collateral, right? It's like you, you had access to parties, to hanging out, to fun. So there was this idea that you had access. And I think as you get older, I think, I, I forget who it was. It was a great commencement speech and it says, um, it was some news reporter and they said, it's all high school all over again of basically people in some sort of pecking order trying to jump up to the next level and a lot of backsetting and some other stuff. And I, and I hate that analogy because I hope it's not true. But in terms of the misconceptions that people have about popularity, I mean, I can speak from my own experience that like while I was having a lot of fun, like again, so much of my early life was defined by seeking external validation, looking at other people to tell me that I was cool, smart, good looking, whatever that was. And again, like I think that what I learned is that anytime you're looking to associate with any sort of social group or people to find any sort of value, like you are going to be seeking and kind of in this anxious loop for a really long time. And, you know, that's, that's where, you know, I certainly experience. So I think that again, the idea of, of belonging to a certain social group and how that could bring you some sort of true fulfillment or confidence, um, I think is kind of a, a fallacy. And so that's, that, that, that's what came up for me. Yeah. So, so one thing I wonder when you talk about access, right, is that I wonder, are our perceptions of how accessible these groups are completely off? Like if I had actually made an effort to talk to any of these people, because it's funny, I met, you know, I reconnected with a friend uh, on the streets of Costa Rica who somehow we had been in junior high together. We had a lot of the same, you know, we were in the same schools. We had a lot of mutual friends that we moved away. Somehow we'd never been in the same class. And he just happened to see me wearing a Texas A&M shirt while walking around Tamarindo. And we had discovered 25 years later that we knew all these people and you know, we became friends. And the strange thing was at the time, I thought, oh, this is a popular person who probably has no interest in being friends with somebody like me. Um, so I wonder, you know, is that sort of uh, like idea that these people are inaccessible or they may shun or avoid us completely wrong, like if we actually made an effort? Um, so that's one thing. The other, I know that you're a parent and I know you have very young kids, but how do you think about this in terms of uh, raising kids and, you know, teaching them about how to navigate the social dynamics of the shit show that is, you know, being a teenager. Yeah. You know, I, the first part that you talked about is I think just identifying how our perception of other people impacts how we show up. It's like, what is the story that we have about people? And so oftentimes when we have these stories of someone, whether you know we're in high school and that's a popular person or whether we're grownups and we're thinking about someone as a, a celebrity or a famous entrepreneur, it's like oftentimes our stories that we project onto these people that they are not going to be interested in us or that we won't have anything to say that is a value to them. Like these stories and perceptions that we project on people have a very tangible impact on, on how we feel and how we end up showing up. And it's like, I mean, I certainly can experience walking into a conference when I was 21 years old as the youngest entrepreneur there and was like, I don't have anything that Richard Branson or Sean Parker is going to care about. And like, when I have that story about that person, it has a tangible feeling in my chest. I feel anxiety. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I often talk about when, I, when I'm working with people as a communications trainer is that idea of kind of removing those stories as much as possible and trying to meet people as they are in the present moment, which is just based on like, what do I want to talk about? What do I want to know about this person and, and what's happening right now? Because oftentimes when we're, we're absent of those stories, we can meet people really kind of where they're at as they are. And it's a lot easier to just be ourselves because we're responding to reality and not some story or idea that we have of people. So it's like, I think it, it removes other people's agency when we tell stories about who they are or what they want from us. And so it's so much more important to just show up really based on our, our internal motivation and how we want to show up. And, um, and I think that, you know, when it comes to raising kids and how they can navigate these types of social circles, I think that, you know, again, really kind of how do we how do we empower young people to connect with these kind of internal guides of 
who are we, what are my values, what do I care about, what am I interested in, and allowing our communication and our behavior to be something that flows freely from from these internal motivators as opposed to these kind of validation-seeking practices that I think so many of us can can, can identify with and I certainly experienced. So I think that, you know, I, I... I love the prompt of like, what do you wish you knew? Uh, you know, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? And that would be one of the things is just, you know, having some of these questions to get to know myself a little more deeply and to just trust that with other people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that one of my earliest mentors, he used to say, he said, you know, when you have people who are well known as guests, you become sort of fanboyish. And he said, you know, keep that in check and see how it changes the interview. And what I realized was I was doing exactly what you're talking about. And the thing that I think I'm always after is to humanize people who I think appear to the outside world as superhuman, which is why I ask these really strange questions that have nothing to do with their accomplishments. Yeah, totally. I mean, I love that idea of of getting people to answer something that hasn't been templatized in their own mind is like a, a great pathway to get some sort of authentic reaction and just sets the foundation for like where we're going to go in the interview, which I think I already feel with you again of thinking about my experience of racism as a little white dude in Hawaii and my social group, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working through this for the first time with you right now. And because of that, you know, I feel alive. I'm really present to this. It feels very real. And, and I think that those types of unorthodox or just uh, pointy questions can do that, which is great. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a fitting transition to what I want to talk about next, which is race. You know, we've had your wife here who is mixed race. And I know that for you to like <clears throat> marry a woman who's, you know, part Indian, part Japanese, like you're integrating all of these cultures. I think racism is something that's really fascinating to me, particularly as somebody who was an Indian kid who grew up in a predominantly white town. And uh, I think that, you know, we were driving through Colorado. We were in some really sort of you know, backwards place at the the border of Colorado and some other state when we were coming here to Boulder. And my roommate and I walked into some hotel and I was really tired. And I was like, look, man, I just want to get a drink and get a burger. And, you know, I think literally there was nothing but white people in there. It was just sure. like, you know, it seemed like pretty much straight up rednecks. And we walked in and the place went just completely dead silent. And I, I barely noticed it because I was so tired. And I was just like, ah, okay, you know what? I'm like, let's get a wine and a burger. Uh, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to go back up to the room, play Xbox and get the hell to Boulder. And it was kind of funny because my roommate noticed that it was racism. I, he was like, dude, that was straight up racism. I was hmm. like, really? I'm like, wow, you know, for a white person, you're more offended by the racism <laughs> towards Indian people than I am. But I think that's partially because we've been desensitized to it. So, uh, you know, on that whole sort of, you know, note, I mean, when you think about integrating cultures, um, particularly as somebody who's white, like, what has that experience been like for you to try to bring in new culture and, um, you know, experience it and try to understand it because I have friends who will say, okay, you know what? Like, yes, if we married an Indian girl, if, if you marry an Indian girl, it'll be easier. There's no question about it. There are just certain sort of things that make sense to Indian parents. Like this is the example I always come back to is if you brought a girl that you were dating home for seven months and you said, you need to sleep in a separate bedroom to her and she was Indian. She'd be like, yeah, of course I do. If you said that to a girl who wasn't an Indian, she might be like, what? But, you know, one thing I'll say about, you know, how I think about integrating this stuff is I actually I'm doing uh, a, a workshop this week with with several kind of leaders in the world of, of men's work. So people that do kind of training seminars, writers, speakers. And we, we just read the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And so it's kind of the idea of how white people have never really they've been taught to to kind of think that race matters, but they've never really been taught to evaluate their own race, that their being white doesn't really matter. And so there's like a lot of discomfort around discussing topics of, of race, especially with white people, uh, because in a way that's kind of like a, a path to sustain their, their place of kind of dominance in a social structure. And so I think that what I would say I think about this is that I just try to stay in these conversations, even when they feel uncomfortable and like building up kind of a, a tolerance and capacity to hold racial conversations that may be uncomfortable. And I'm really fascinated again by identity and like how, who we think we are drives what we do in the world. And I think that whether we're conscious of it or, or unconscious of it, um, you know, our, our race, our sexuality, our gender, you know, these are identities that we have that 
we've been socialized to make those mean something, you know, it's like to be a man means something to me subconsciously to be white, you know, means something to me subconsciously. There's all these elements of socialization. We've been taught what these mean. And so it's important to, I think, explore identity, whether that is race, whether that's like, you know, my, my whiteness, whether that's my being straight, um, a man, because when we explore identity, and some of the the subconscious meaning that we have we have kind of uh, assigned to those identities, then we start to understand kind of some of these rigid roles, some of these forces that that drive who we are and how we operate in the world. And so, for me personally, like I really do believe, you know, I'm a, an individualist and like that I, I have a sense of control over my own being and how I show up in the world. And so, by addressing I, these identities, we can kind of transcend them all together and access deeper levels of freedom of being like who we are, um, kind of at this much deeper spiritual level. And so I think that it's like, it's, I, I like to address race because I think that there is underneath all of us, like something else that is, that is truer, more personal that, that, that everyone should have a right to, to explore, to connect with. And, you know, certainly there, there are societal implications as well. And injustices, the, the definition of racism from Robin D'Angelo's book is the idea that there is uh, prejudice and prejudice is just basically uh, judging someone based on their social group. And then you have discrimination, which is when someone backs up uh, just like this, this judgment of someone based on their social group with, with action. It was an active, active prejudice. And then racism is actually more of a, an institutional systematic, uh, inequality that exists between social groups. And, um, it's interesting to talk about that of just like identifying that, you know, especially as it relates to release that, um, for someone to be called a racist, um, you know, it's very hard for them to to own that of like maybe a little bit of racism. It's obviously a you know, binary. You're either racist or you're not. And that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, well, there's, there's nuance, you know? And so yeah. how do you have this conversation that is nuanced? And so as a, as a communication trainer, I think that's, what's interesting for me of like, how do we open up these conversations that are nuanced, that aren't so targeted, that are assigning these things to people, but just allowing us to explore our ideas and our feelings openly and without a lot of judgment. So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years, and it means the world to us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime, which gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. It's funny you say that because my roommate and I, you know, we were living together, you know, right around this quarantine and we were, you know, our mornings are ridiculous. We have the most absurd conversations. And he's like, we should start a podcast called Quarantine with a White Guy. I was like, yeah, he's like, you couldn't call it Quarantine, you know, with a Brown Guy. He's like, because that would come across racist. And it just, you know, it was kind of funny to me that we have to even think about it that way. <laughs> What I wonder, uh, as uh, you know, a person who a, a white guy married to uh, you know a part Indian woman, but Indian father-in-law, out of the cultural experiences that have shocked you or been uncomfortable, weird, what are some of them? What are the things that have surprised you or been like, oh wow, I didn't know that? Oh man, um, this is probably the first time that I've told this on the air. Um, hopefully, Mister Agarwal, you are not listening to this one, but I had <laughs> been known to get people to do that. <laughs> um, so, so Mickey is seven and a half years older than I am and she's an absolute powerhouse. And I don't know if she told this story on her episode, but, uh, Mickey and I decided that we were going to get, uh, spiritually married three and a half days after meeting each other, uh, which is a little unorthodox, especially for her conservative Indian father. And so, <laughs> and so we didn't tell him the whole story about kind of getting married at Burning Man three and a half days after meeting one another. But uh, when we did meet for really kind of the first proper time, 
I was up at their house in Connecticut and I mean, he was just icing me so hard, like at the dinner table, not talking to me, not asking any questions when we were playing ping pong. I like literally went up to play ping pong and he like put his paddle down and like walked away. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And, um, <laughs> and I just remember having this moment where like I make, I, I'd made a decision in this relationship with Vicky, even though I was pretty young when I got into it, that like I was, I was all in. I was going to see this thing through. I, I saw a future where she could be my life partner. Not that it was absent of challenges early on, because they, they certainly were there. But I was I was all in and committed to this. And so when I was leaving uh, their house in the time, I, I went off. I went and I, I you know, I, I grabbed her father. I said, Raj, you know, I'd love to. Actually, definitely, Mr. Agarwal was not calling him Raj. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that, I, I you know that Seen the namesake and, that there's that moment where, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Oh. No, definitely not. Definitely not communicating on a first name basis. Yeah. And so, and so we go back into you know their rec room, and I, um, and I, you know, sat him down. I was like, I'd love to have a moment to just communicate with you, Mr. Agarwal, and and so I, I verbatim, I said, I, I wanted to declare my intentions. Because there was a formality to the courting process that, that I think he had experienced and that he expected. And he was very protective of his daughter. And so I had this moment of declaring my intentions for his daughter, um, which felt very foreign, foreign and formal to me. But at the same time, it was this interesting moment of identifying kind of a, a cultural tradition and way of being that was not kind of formal or, or how I would conduct myself or I think how I would conduct myself with my own children. But it was this moment of really with, without judgment, trying to meet him with where he's at. It's, this is something that he learned from his parents and that they learned from their parents. And that if it was something that was important to him, like I, I wanted to be able to, to meet him in that place. And he shook my hand and looked me in the eyes for the first time. And we had, we were great ever since then, you know, it was a real transformation, but so it was an interesting cultural learning moment for me. Yeah. I can imagine. I, I, cause I was wondering, I was like, how quickly did that sort of tension dissolve? But I mean, if it dissolved that quickly, that's pretty amazing. I was always pretty good with parents. So I, uh, you know, and when I was very clear, I was like, this, this is not something that is just fun and games for me. It's like, yeah, I really do see a future with your daughter. I'd like to make her my wife one day. I'd like to make her the mother of my child if she'll have me. And I think that he, he felt that that was true for me. And, and so he, he welcomed me into the, the Agarwal home. Yeah. Well, I think meeting parents for any significant other is intimidating as it is meeting Indian parents takes that to a whole other level. <laughs> like, I remember my brother-in-law, like literally the first time we met him, my sister called me. She said, okay, we've been dating for like four months. I think he's ready to start meeting family members, but he said he would much rather meet you first and before mom and dad. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I think I would feel the same way. And the poor guy ended up having to spend an entire weekend with my whole family. And I was like, Wow, this guy must really like my sister. <laughs> <laughs> and how did how did he do? He did extremely well. There I mean, you go. You know, they're married now, so clearly. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I think so. Tell me about the work that you do. I mean, how has all this led to you know sort of uh, where you started? I mean, Mickey gave me an early hint of some of it, and you know, I read up on some of it. But for the sake of our listeners, like, where does this career journey of yours start, and how does it lead to the things you're doing around men's work? Yeah, totally. You know, so I, I'll start quickly with I, I when I got into high school and even through college, I was finding a lot of excitement in partying and promoting in nightclubs and was a very exciting lifestyle, but very unrewarding, unfulfilling. And um, after graduating from college, the only jobs that I could get were in basically hotels and I, I just did not give a crap about anything that I, I had lined up. And so I just read Into the Wild, uh, great John Krakauer book, and then adapted into a movie um, about um, Christopher McCandless graduates from Emory, then hitchhikes across the country to Alaska. So I was not going to hitchhike, but I decided that I was going to basically put off all of my job offers. And my dad was moving to Alaska and we drove to Alaska for two months. And it was kind of this exploration of self. It was the first time that I was asking myself questions about who I was, what I wanted to do with my life. And there was one conversation that I think was one of the more transformative moments of my life as we were driving through Michigan. And I was talking to my dad about his time in the military and he was an experimental test pilot and uh, he flew uh, in Vietnam and 
uh, as I was talking to him about his time in the military, I just noticed kind of the, his cadence and his, his tonality and how it changed. And I was like, wow, you sound like you were really proud of the work you did then. And he just looked back at me and he was like, yeah, I, I, I was, I am. And he looked back at me and he said, what's the last thing you've done that you're proud of? And the reality for me is that I didn't, I had, you know, sports accomplishments, winning like kind of like house, uh, athletic competitions and different things like that. But, um, nothing sustained that really came to mind. And then I just sat there for like 10 minutes. And then after, after that 10 minutes, I finally had this one ping of something that came up. And, and two years before that, I'd worked for this children's nonprofit doing adaptive athletics, adaptive athletics in Chicago. So helping young kids with disabilities to go water skiing, to play volleyball, to play ice hockey, to play baseball with the White Sox. And I had helped them to raise tens of thousands of dollars for those kids. I had flyer bombed North Beach, raising money for events. I had, you know, stayed late kind of working on these programs. And at the time, I just thought it was fun. It never really resonated as deeply meaningful for me. I was just enjoying the work. And I look back on it and I had this kind of clarity that thinking back on that three-month stretch, I still felt this sense of pride from that work. And as I was talking about it, you know, my dad just looks back at me and very simply says, so why don't you just do more of that? And, you know, I think in, in a place in my life where I had no idea what I wanted to do, what was meaningful, I had this, this grain of truth that when I was engaged in the, the sustained helping of these kids and I was of service, that I felt good about myself. And so that really sparked me on the path of seeking kind of a, a career in the world of, of service. And I, I was always kind of creative and knew I wanted to do my own thing. I was not very hireable at that time. And so I was passionate about entrepreneurship. And uh, several years later, I started my first children's nonprofit. And without getting too deep into that, um, you know, I was working as an executive recruiter from uh, 8 a.m. in the morning to 6 p.m. and then 6 p.m. to 12 a.m. four days a week. I was starting Dreams for Kids DC, and and after several years, we ended up becoming one of the premier adaptive athletic providers in Washington DC. And so we do large scale adaptive clinics with the Washington Capitals, the Wizards, um, the Redskins, and basically create these life changing events for kids with physical developmental disabilities to come together, experience these sports. And then we, we funnel them into our community partners who are doing sustained athletic, uh, athletic programming. And, you know, for me, it was sports were always such a big part of my life. And it was really how I came together, developed friendships, stayed engaged with, with my community. And, and so for so many young people with disabilities, they don't have those same sort of sustained opportunities. And it's why, you know, those athletic opportunities was a chance for me to do something that was really important for me growing up to offer that to this disenfranchised community that oftentimes doesn't have that same opportunity. And after three years, we, we sustained that. I brought in a new executive director and um, that was my first thing, but that was really foundationally of just, I just knew that I, I, I just, I needed to be engaged in the practice of serving others in a way that felt meaningful to myself uh, to be fulfilled. And so I did that for several years and then I you know, wanted to make money for a couple of years and started an agency and built a bunch of websites and did that and was like, well, this isn't enough. And in 2014, um, I started my next company called Tribute, which is at this very moment during social quarantine, having quite a moment. Um, but uh, Mickey, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, basically decided that she was going to get me a very special gift. So uh, Mickey um, rounded up 20 of my closest friends and family members. She got each of them to submit a one-minute video telling me why they love me. And then she compiled all those clips into one video montage. And when I got home to our house on my birthday, she had invited 20 friends over. She sat me in the back of the room. She put this video on and she hits play. And so here I'm in, in the back of the room and the first person up is my mom. And she's telling me how grateful she is that I, I've been supporting her business. And then my dad who says, you know, I love you. And I know he loves me, but he doesn't say those words a lot. And then it's my friend, Matt, who called me his best friend for the first time. And I had felt like we were best friends, but we hadn't put words to it. It's an interesting experience as an adult to get a new best friend. And at this moment in the video, I just started bawling because it was overwhelming. I was with these people I loved and they were telling me exactly why they appreciated me and how it impacted their lives. And it was this, this transformative moment of like acknowledging my own self-worth and loving myself because the people I cared about were showing me how much they love me. And I came out of this and I looked at Mickey and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever received. How did you do this? 
And then she just looks back at me and she was like, well, it actually sucked. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, it took you know, 15 hours of emailing people, collecting videos, stitching them together. And so yeah, I walked into the next room and I kid you not, it, it took one minute and I had the name Tribute. And I just realized that this is such a, a powerful experience. I basically just watched my eulogy when I was 27, which is a much better time to watch it than when you're dead and in the ground. And so that started in 2014. And I get goosebumps talking about it right now. You know, it's, we, we've been doing it for six years and, you know, we're on track to have a million people on the site this month. And we've launched since, since like uh, quarantine for COVID started almost 50,000 tributes. And wow. you know, the New Yorkers called us Hallmark 2.0. We've been on the Today Show. We were on Good Housekeeping yesterday, Real Simple Today. And, uh, but really in a time where, um, you know, technology is, is really, <laughs> it's called social media, but a lot of times, you know, it's what, what the architects of our digital universe are optimizing for is, is usage is not our, our being. It's like uh, the designers at Instagram or Facebook basically get a bonus because you're spending more time on their site. But are you, are you happier? Are you more fulfilled when you spend more times on those platforms? There's this paradox of, you know, the value that we want versus what they're designing for. And at tribute, you know, one of the craziest things is like our KPIs, our human connection are something we call TOJ. And I kid you not, after 500,000 of these given, we track TOJ, which stands for tears of joy. Did the recipient cry tears of joy when they watch their video? And over 80% of our customers cry tears of joy when they watch their video. I so want to make one. Like I, I literally, like it's funny because I just had a birthday this weekend and I'm thinking, wow, like, yeah, I would have been in tears if somebody made me one of those, but it makes me think, it's like, oh, my dad has a birthday coming up like sometime in July. So now I think I know what I'm going to do. There you go, man. And it's, and it's, so it's just that it's like, and, and how this ties to the through line is dreams for kids was, was building community for people who didn't have it. It's when it comes to uh, tribute, it is appreciation is one of the, the foundational elements of meaningful connection is that to, for people to feel connected in their relationships, they need to feel seen, supported, heard. And Tribute is a technology that makes it easier for people around the globe to share their appreciation with the people they care about. There's one story that stands out that I, I have to tell here. And it's, yes. we, do, we do a lot of work with companies and there's just this one. It's because it's a lot of people who are listening to this, whether they're entrepreneurs, running companies. So this team reached out to us and they said, so we have a woman who is retiring after 35 years with our company. And I, I can't say the name of that company for privacy reasons, but so she had spent 35 years with this company. And we created this tribute video for her. It was about 45 minutes and it was all of her colleagues, uh, the bosses, the owner of the company. And so they sent her this video and they showed it to her to the retirement party. They had a photo of it. And the next day she sends me this photo of her watching it. She's crying and she says, thank you so much. This was the most meaningful gift I've ever received. But the thing that I remember more than anything else, and again, I get goosebumps when I'm telling the story, is her last line was, I didn't know they cared this much. Mm. And I, and I just remember like the sinking feeling in my chest. They didn't know they cared this much. And it's like 35 years of your life at one company. But to, to have that experience, right? It's like you're going to spend a third of your life working. If you spend 35 years at a company, like that's, that's honestly more time than you're probably going to spend with your kids. And so it's like to not understand how appreciated you are. We all have so much appreciation for the people in our life. And so like one of our core sayings is if you have anything nice to say, say it all. Like there's no reason to keep that inside. And it's one of the easiest things that we can do to connect more deeply uh, in our relationships. And so that's, that's tribute, which is again, appreciation to foster meaningful human connection. And, you know, in the process of building tribute, I connected with a, an amazing uh, life coach named Lauren Zander, who's also Mickey's coach, and she became my mentor and started training me as a as a life coach. And then I got introduced to a modality called uh, Gestalt communication, which is this really powerful uh, non dogmatic facilitation framework that allows people to speak transparently about their present moment experience. And so in layman's term, that just means how do you just get real with what it is that you're feeling and thinking in the moment with no hesitation or restrictions on what it is that you're saying? And so I started studying this modality and created my first men's group. Um, and within 
you know, 30 minutes of getting a group of guys together in a room, allowing them to explore their emotions, get real with the challenges, the, the, you know, the joy of their experience. It just felt like one of the most connected experiences of my entire life. And so my latest venture, uh, the Junto is we do these monthly retreats and online weekly town halls where we basically facilitate these gatherings where men are empowered to explore their identity, what they've meant to meet it mean as a man, who they are, what they're here to contribute and learn the skills of what we call emotional mastery. How do they tap into their emotions, uh, learn from them and integrate them more proactively into their communication and their behavior. And so with that, that's kind of present day where we're at now. <laughs> Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. So I think the, the thing that really struck me out of everything, I mean, all, all of them, each one of them, I think, you know, we could probably do an hour conversation on each one just based on everything you told me. But uh, the moment with your dad, you're really young to have recognized the importance of what he told you. Why do you think you had the self-awareness to pursue something that you found that engaging at that early of an age? Because I don't think that most people do. I mean, at least when I went to college, it was like, oh, you have this Berkeley degree, like go get yourself a job at like Accenture, Google, or, you know, anybody else in the Bay Area who would actually hire you that would look good on a resume. Like that is kind of the default sort of narrative of people who come out of these sort of Ivy League schools or, you know, top schools. 
But I mean, this is something in every story you've told, I'd noticed this pattern of an unusually high level of self-awareness for somebody as young as you were. Why do you think that is? You know, I mean, I would, I would say that it is a lot of growing up around emotionally kind of available people of like my, my mother was a, an author and a, a speaker and we had these kinds of open conversations and I was very fortunate to be brought up around people who were exploring themselves. And, you know, at that point, when I heard that question of what are you proud of, uh, the year before that, I had another conversation with a guy named Steven Robbins, who was one of my first mentors. And he was a career counselor at, at HBS and Babson for a while. And, and he was the first person and he was like, what do you want to do after graduating from college? And I was like, I don't know, promote, uh, like run nightclubs. And he was like, great. Why he's laughing at me. And I was like, I don't know. He's like, well, what do you care about? And I was like, uh, making money, uh, women and partying. And he, <laughs> he laughed again and I was like, okay, great. And then he said, do you know the difference between, um, happiness and pleasure? And I said, no, what is it? And he said, uh, pleasure is exciting, but ultimately fleeting. So it can feel good, but the, the kind feelings tend to go away immediately or shortly thereafter the experience is done. And he said, um, he said, happiness is, is long lasting. And he said, it's like the, the feelings last kind of like days, weeks, months after the, the thing is gone. And it was this interesting context to think about like, what are the things that I was feeling that were rewarding or that, you know, occurred to me as, as good, um, and so when I had this, this moment of looking back to two years in the past, and I was thinking about how engaged I was with this, this nonprofit, I was just aware of how I felt. I felt the feelings that I felt two years ago in that moment looking back. And so again, I think that you know, there's so much truth to be found in our, our embodied experience. And it's like, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about how important it was to, to live a life of service or to contribute. But I was just aware of like the positive feelings, the pride that existed in me when I was looking back on that. And so that's why I say, I, I took that, that term, a grain of truth, my friend Azita, who uses it so beautifully, but that it was a grain of truth is that like that thing, when I did that, I felt, and I feel good about myself. Like that's just the truth. And when we connect to more of that truth of like, when I do this thing, when I speak this way, I feel good. I feel fulfilled that it becomes easier to use those little nuggets of truth to direct our future action. And, and so for me, I think that I was open to that because I had been lucky enough to have those types of, of mentors in my life who, who gave me frameworks to understand my own experience. And it's, it's why I love writing. I love speaking. I love working with young people because I think that for me, it was always questions and frameworks that, that gave me the, the power to explore my own experience. And I think that, um, you know, again, I, I, I want to make it, I want to yeah, pass that, that same gift that I received from others and onto, onto other people. Let's explore this idea of appreciation in a bit more detail because uh, it's funny because suddenly the whole thing makes a lot more sense to me now because I remember in, in Mickey's book when I got it, there was one thing that I remember I said I didn't want to leave our conversation without asking her about and it was the yearbook that you make at the end of every year. And so I said, you have to tell me about this mainly because I thought, oh, wow, I've totally got to steal this idea. This is so brilliant. Uh, but I think that I, I had no idea that people could go 35 years and not recognize, you know, how much they're appreciated. And I think that I, I can tell you that there are definitely moments when I don't, I wouldn't have noticed. I was like, ah, you know, I, th I think it's that whole Seth Godin thing of, you know, would people miss you if you were gone? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't feel like other people would. And how do you, how do you get over that? I mean, like, what can we do for those people? Totally. You know, I think that there, and I, I talk about this, especially within a corporate context or a speaking, but it's like, there's a, there's a cycle of ingratitude that exists because there can be some nerves, some anxiety around telling someone, Hey, I love you. Here's how you've impacted uh, you know, my life. Because what if they don't say that? What if they don't 
appreciate you. Or in the corporate context, if I share my appreciation openly with my employees, will they then take advantage of me? Will they then ask for more money? We attach all these stories to it. But what's what's positive and what's what's enheartening about this is that there are studies that show that people who express their appreciation more actively at work are thought to be more successful bosses. They they climb the corporate ranks more quickly. These are kind of studies coming out of Wharton about employee recognition. And so in terms of the things that keep people from expressing their gratitude, I think that there is some fear and anxiety around like how it will be received. And I think that what's important there is, again, as we come back to that idea of internal motivation versus external validation of like, look, if you think about the last time that someone shared a compliment with you, the last time that someone told you that you were awesome, how did that feel? It was good. It was awesome, right? It's like, unless you're kind of catcalling or doing something obviously appropriate, sharing your appreciation for someone is almost always a welcomed kind of experience to receive. There is really no good reason to keep our appreciation inside. And there's a lot of studies that talk about the practice of gratitude as one of the, the simplest things that we can do to uh, uplift our, our subjective well-being. And so you know, when we think about sharing our appreciation for people, that is gratitude. It's like you can be grateful for a person, a place, or a thing, but I would say that the one that's most important is is being grateful for people because then it connects you into your relationships, which has been shown to be like one of the most significant variables in in long term kind of like sustained happiness. So, so I think it's removing those barriers and, and making it clear like how simple and effective gratitude is for for being happy and feeling connected to the people in your life. Let's talk about the men's work in particular. I think that your men's work over the last probably 15 to 20 years has gone undergone a very significant evolution. And I only know this because, I mean, it was my entry point into personal development, which was the seduction community, which I think most of us who had been through it will look back on it and say that was you know one of those things we look at and we're like, wow, that was terrible. But I think it, it spoke to a much deeper issue, which is I think there's no area of life that men, I think, stress as much about. I mean, I think it was pretty clear even what you said, you know, when somebody asked you, what are you interested in? You said women, nightclubs, and money. Yeah, um, That is such a, I think for so many men, I mean, myself included, like their success or lack thereof with women becomes such a defining part of their self-worth and their identity. Um, because that is the message we get constantly from the world around us. I mean, you watch a TV show like Entourage, what is the clear message? This is the standard by which this is what success with women looks like, you know, and that is deeply embedded in pop culture. Um, and yet, you know, I mean, like the, the funny thing is, you know, I'm working on a new book about, you know, sort of, uh, this whole idea of a portfolio of meaning. And I said, look, you know, I, this became such an issue for me that, you know, it became my entry point into personal development. I spent all these years fixing myself, quote unquote, and here I am 42 and still single. So what gives, um, but, more than that, what I wonder is that, you know, one is how has this evolved? Because I think there's one thing I saw on your website that you said modern masculinity and emotional maturity. So one, you know, address my comments however you want, but talk about me to talk to me about how you define modern masculinity. Yeah, you know, I think that uh modern masculinity is is always a moving target. Masculinity is always a moving target. The, the definition of masculinity is simply a collection of traits, behaviors, and expectations that we associate with the experience of a man. And so it is a, sub a subjective, societally accepted uh, definition of, of manhood, right? And so I think that it is interesting to identify like what are these these trends and themes that do exist for the experience of men, but that certainly varies across, um, across sexuality. It, it differs across race. And I think that the, the reason that masculinity and the exploration of it is important is again, what we talked about before with race is again, it comes down to identity and, and James Clear speaks really beautifully about identity um, in Atomic Habits. And he talks about the, the identity model of change. And he, he says basically that like who we think we are determines what we do. And when it comes to behavior change, to freedom, to being ourselves, who we want to be in the world, um, like we can think about the behaviors or the results that we want. Like we can think of change as a two-part system, which we normally do. It's like, so I want to be successful with women. 
Okay. So I want to be successful with women. I want to be desirable to women. There's the result that I want. So what are the behaviors that I can introduce? Well, I can go to the gym. I can, uh, you know, learn pickup and, and communication techniques, but ultimately it's like, if we just think about the behaviors that we introduce and we don't deal with our identity, which is who we think we are. So if we think that deep down subconsciously, we're undesirable, unattractive, never going to be in a relationship, afraid of commitment, that as much as we can consciously put in those behaviors, we'll revert back to the behaviors that kind of coincide with that, that deep down identity. And I think that for, for men, masculinity, what we've made to be a man is, is so much conditioned uh, by our relationship with our father, socialized by what we experienced growing up through the media. And when we start to understand what we've made it mean to be a man, then we can start to think, well, actually, like what, what are masculine characteristics that I find to be useful? What are the ones that I find to be harmful? What are the feminine characteristics that I find to be useful, that I find to be harmful? And so then we create this more conscious understanding of masculinity and we can dive even deeper that to say like what we talked about before, which is like beyond masculinity, who am I and what is that identity that I'm going to consciously remember and construct and not who I think society needs or expects me to be. It's about that deeper level of, of freedom. And so that's how I think about masculinity and why I think it's really interesting from a, a personal development standpoint. And again, it's like so many guys are looking for basically some way to escape their, their feelings and whether that's unworthiness, unattractiveness, insecurity. And so they look for either numbing through video games and porn and drugs, alcohol, or through external validation like I was, which was basically, again, like partying, like um, validation from women. Like we're going to be in a constant state of, of searching and, and unease. And so it's really important to connect with those internal motivators, which is what so much of, of our men's work is about. Yeah. So we had Brett McKay here from The Art of Manliness, and this was probably one of my favorite conversations uh, in terms of how he defined this. You know, he was sort of comparing you know, what made The Art of Manliness popular. But one thing he said that always stayed with me was um, his you know, definition of modern masculinity was Coach Taylor on Friday Night Lights. And I was like, yeah, I could see that because to me, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, by my roommates and I are watching the show, like this is the sixth time I think I've watched every season all the way through. Uh, <laughs> but there is something really interesting about this, this guy, because he's like such a hard ass around, you know, his football team, but he comes unglued around his wife and daughter that kind of softens him. And to me, it's like, wow, this is, there's something, and yet there's an immense amount of integrity in who he is as a person, uh, which I appreciate. So one thing I wonder is, and I've seen this with a lot of friends and my friends have even said, you know, this is something that we've seen change in you is I think that when we're young, um, particularly for men, so many of the choices that we make in our dating lives are driven by external validation. It's like, oh, well, my friends think this girl is hot. Will she look good, you know, next to me, uh, you know, when I'm going to a restaurant or whatever. How has that evolved for you with age? Like when you, you know, get to the point of connecting with somebody like Mickey to the point where you're like, oh, I want this person to be my life partner. How did, I mean, cause clearly, you know, the beginning of this, just from what you told me, nightclubs and, you know, hot women and money, there's a very different value system by which you were making choices. Hmm. Man, I, I laugh because it's funny to think about it. Um, you, it, it has, the, the best way I can explain the evolution of, of my experience of, of dating and women and love is, um, so it's, it's really what I said in my wedding vows to Mickey. And it, it, there's a, a beautiful story that not a lot of people know about Viktor Frankl and Abraham Maslow. And so I discovered this as I was writing my, my wedding vows. And um, it, it, so Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And as many people are familiar with it, at the very tip of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. And so self-actualization is thought to be the, the peak expression of human experience. And um, that's what I was taught in school. That's what I was familiar with. Um, but what I didn't know is that, and this is, this is true. You can look it up on Google if you type in uh, basically Abraham Maslow's amended hierarchy of needs, is that towards the end of his life, he developed a relationship with Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and survived concentration camps. And so uh, in this book, he basically 
uh, introduced Maslow to his thinking on, on purpose. And what uh, Maslow realized after developing this relationship is that the peak expression of human experience was not self-actualization. That if your goal is self-actualization, it's a fallacy unto itself. Because if you actualize the self, then a new precipice of achievement immediately appears in the same moment. So it's, it's not really possible. He said that if you ever want to actualize the self, you have to have a goal that is greater than the self. And so he amended his hierarchy of needs so that self-transcendence is at the very top and that you have to be, whether it's a person, a place, a thing. And so for me, how my, my thinking about love and relationships have evolved is that I think that the, the best relationships in mind with Mickey of why, why I love Mickey, why I am committed to her is because I'm so grounded into the belief and the truth that the, the best version of me, whoever I am destined to become only exists in the context where I'm fully committed to her and our relationship before me. It's by prioritizing these things, who she is just works for me that prioritizing that is tantamount to my own development, growth, evolution as a person. And so it's kind of a, you know, a, a more intricate way of saying that like she makes me the best version of myself, but it's even more than that. It's like the, the best version of myself is not possible without someone like her in a relationship like the one that we have to commit to. And so, you know, I think that that is for me, you know, how, cause I think that people seek relationships for different reasons. But for me, I think that that is such an important facet of what I was looking for was in that, that growth was in that challenge, um, and in that connection. And, and she gives me that. And so that's, that's probably as, as closely as I could articulate my current thinking on love and relationships. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really beautiful and fitting place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I love that. I just pause for a moment. It is the truth. And it is, and we talk about this in men's work that when someone is telling you the truth, when they are, we talk a lot about transparency, about transparency, like transparently transmitting the emotion or thought that's present with you, not guarding it at all. And that when you are in the presence of someone's truth, when they're speaking honestly and transparently about what they've experienced, what they're going through or what's happening right now, I, we, we are biologically engineered to pay attention to emotion, to that real deep down truth. And it's like for thousands and thousands of years where we were nonverbal as a species. It's when someone was emoting, we're hardwired to connect, to pay attention. Something important is happening. And so the process of getting in touch with that truth and giving it a voice is one of the, the most powerful ways to show up for others as real unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't, Thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with listeners. This has been powerful, provocative, like one of those conversations that I think I'm going to have to revisit time and time again. Man, and you just, you're such a great interviewer. I, I love Thanks. it. That is a student of communication. I just, uh, I've been smiling on this end uh, just with the questions. And I think, again, just giving people a chance to explore things that they're not thinking about. It's such a, it's such a gift and I really enjoyed it, man. So thank you for the questions. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything else that you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So for people who want to give uh, the most meaningful gift on earth, just go to uh, tribute.co and you can check that out. And then for anyone who is a man or has a man in their life that they love that wants to you know, explore modern masculinity, emotional transformation, uh, just check out wejunto.com and uh, would love to hear from you. My personal site's just, it's Andrew Horn. You can Google me and I'm the first one that shows up for speaking and stuff like that. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melena, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. 
They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com, code SUPER24. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.